Encounters in Yoga and Zen Meetings of Cloth and Stone by Trevor Leggett This collection of pieces is reverently dedicated to the late Hari Prasad Shastri, in whom the ancient traditions were always young. We begin with an introduction, written especially for this audiobook. Lotus Lake Dragon Pool by Trevor Leggett These translations and transcriptions are reverently dedicated to the late Hari Prasad Shastri, in whose life and words the ancient traditions drew new breath. We begin with an introduction, written especially for this audiobook. My name is Tony Dunn. I enjoyed a 30-year friendship with Trevor Leggett, which I can sum up in one word, enlargement. And there are other words within that word, words like delight, laughter, surprise, constant surprise, you never knew what he was going to say next. Everyone wants to meet a wonderfully intelligent and developed person through whom they can grow and develop. For me, Trevor was that person. I hope that this audiobook will allow listeners to glimpse the magic of Trevor's personality, a personality of great integrity and fluidity. His translation of Hakuin's Song of Meditation begins with the words, All beings are from the very beginning Buddhas. It is like water and ice. Apart from water, no ice. Water is everywhere in our life and stories its power to transform, its sensitivity to surroundings. Whether it is still or cascading in torrents down the Himalayas, or changing into solid ice, or the vapour of cloud, a source of health, or deadly disease, it is a mysterious substance. Other pictures and symbolism of water pervade our mental life too. For instance, the sea as a symbol of the unconscious mind, as the abode of the great whales of history and literature, in the secular, biblical, Buddhist and Upanishadic accounts of life. In this collection of stories, a clue lies in the title. A lake may be turbulent, a pool may be agitated, 
but their natural mode is stillness. It is in calmness that we are best able to act and to be. Basic to yoga and Zen training is stillness. Further training builds on this so that stillness can be retained even in vigorous movement. In his personal way of speaking, the warmest praise that Trevor Leggett gave was to those he described as having kept the child inside alive. This wasn't some doctrine, but the spontaneous talk of a man who himself was so alive that to be in his presence was energizing. Knowing him as a great figure of so many achievements in languages, as a transmitter of Japanese culture, an expert practitioner in meditation based on the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and Zen monastic meditation, a successful writer, a high grade in Japanese chess, it was a delight to find that indeed the child in him was so alive he liked to play. What is common to a clown and a child is the license they are given to show disrespect to the follies of the rest of us. The child is soft and can change, but the clown's disrespect may harden into attitude if the mask of the role begins to become his face. So long as a child retains its natural fluidity, it can learn. If all goes well, it may learn that quiet disrespect that so often goes with a love of truth. Most of us are a mixture of fluidity and attitude, with no prizes for answering the question, which of the two is on the side of life? However, if you can bear to do it, there may be a prize for examining the person known as me in this way. Who wants to remain a clown? Trevor Leggett's teacher, Dr. Hari Prasad Shastri, an enlightened teacher of yoga, who approved Trevor's Zen training, often spoke of our ability to change ourselves. His imagery is telling. Life, he wrote, is emptying and filling. Drive out all love for what is mean and vulgar and perishable. Trevor was heard to say many times, we can change. An awakened one sees the truth of those around him better than they do, the undying in the dying. So in these stories that you're about to hear, it's the truth in you that is addressed. That is what makes them different. If you journey into these stories, will you allow the child to listen? The first part of this book, Lotus Lake, begins with a story called The Magistrate. A teacher of the yoga of the Bhagavad Gita came to the district and set up a school in a village there. When this was reported to the local magistrate, 
the chief administrative officer for the district, he was displeased. He was a follower of a Western philosopher, who held that traditional religion and its compulsive morality was the cause of many of the ills of man. The magistrate had a great love for the people of the district, and worked night and day to bring them to what he saw as modern and progressive views. He therefore put many obstacles in the way of the yoga teacher, and for a time was successful in turning public opinion against him. When he heard that the school was also teaching secular subjects to the local children, admittedly poorly served by the present arrangements because of the poverty of the district, he briefed the school inspector to apply the most stringent tests to the teaching methods. The latter, however, reported favourably, and in fact two of the yoga teacher's disciples had been school teachers and were teaching very ably for a tiny salary. In five years, three of the pupils of this school obtained state scholarships to go on to a high school in the capital and then to the university. Such a thing had never happened before. The magistrate's attitude began to soften. Though he never even came to meet the yoga master, he used his influence to help him in various ways, and indirectly conveyed to the group that if they were in difficulties, they could approach him through a designated intermediary. The disciples concluded that though the magistrate could hardly reverse his previous stance, he had in fact become a religious devotee in private. After some years he fell ill. He went to the capital for a major operation, but returned little better, and it was generally assumed that he had come home to die. The teacher sent a disciple, with no instructions except to present himself. He was refused admission. He sat down on the ground in an inconspicuous place not far from the door. As night came on, his body shivered in the cold, and a servant who saw him brought a mat and a straw coat. He then reported to his master that the disciple was still waiting. Late in the night, the master asked, Is he still there? Yes, was the answer. I gave him some food. Well, let him in, ordered the sick man. I have decided to see him. As the disciple bowed on the threshold, the magistrate said irritably, You've come to preach to me, I suppose. I won't say a word unless you tell me to, promised the brahmachari. Well, I have decided that I may as well tell you. In fact, I must tell you, in fairness, that I have never believed that superstitious stuff you are propagating among the people, and I don't believe it now.
but I have seen that your teacher could get people to cooperate, and to work and study on the basis of pleasing God. And I had found that they just couldn't see clearly enough when I explained to them the same things, on the basis of enlightened self-interest. And I concluded that perhaps the religious phase is a necessary one, to get them moving. Afterwards, as they become better informed, they will discard it. So I gave some help to your efforts. The dogmas do seem to be of some immediate benefit to the people, and ultimately they are bound to destroy themselves. Now I've told you. I felt suddenly that your master was entitled to know, to prevent any misunderstandings later. I hope it isn't too much of a shock to you. I don't suppose you have any text to cover this case, have you? My lord, we have, the disciple told him. It is in the Gita, where the Lord says that in whatever form people worship him, that same faith he makes unwavering. There was a long silence. The magistrate said feebly, Is there any other text that comes to your mind? The brahmachari replied softly, Yes, he sees who sees the Lord standing in all beings, the undying in the dying. Another silence. Anything else? The magistrate's voice was very weak. The brahmachari came and knelt by the bed with his palms joined. Oh, my lord, you cannot tease me any more. I see you clearly now. A great surprise came over the magistrate's face, and then he died. The brahmachari called the servant and told him, Your master is gone now, and well gone. The servant stood in the doorway, looking toward the dead man for a little. Then he said in a choked voice, He was a great man. Yes, and he was a good man too. They said he was strict and hard. Well, he was. He was strict and hard. I should know that. I served him for twelve years. But it was for our own good, and I know that too. And he was much stricter with himself, and much harder on himself. He was so anxious that he shouldn't leave anything undone. So anxious. I don't think I ever saw him smile. He was so anxious. He took a step toward the bed, and peered toward the face. But tell me, I'm not seeing very well just now. That's a smile there, isn't it? He caught the brahmachari's arm. It's true, isn't it? He's smiling now, isn't he? 
Yes, the brahmachari told him. He's smiling now. Do good. Not much thanks in this world when you do a kindly action, grumbled a disciple. They at once try to find something wrong with it, and if they can't find something wrong with it, they find something wrong with you. Seems to make them feel better somehow. I heard a good saying in one of the devotional schools, remarked a senior. Apparently, their teacher used to say, do good and be abused. But he told them that the resistance and abuse against good deeds was like the bow wave when a ship is moving forward strongly. In a way, it is a confirmation and should not be resented too much. Yes, I know, I know. It's all very clever and elevating, but the fact is that when spiteful things are actually being said, when a well-meant action is deliberately twisted to seem self-seeking, it's a bit different then. I haven't got the patience to listen to all that venomous stuff. We have the saying in our own school, said his co-disciple, do good and go. They tell us not to hang about, either for praise or blame. Still, replied his junior, one's bound to hear something even as one goes, and one remark can be as wounding as twenty. Well, laughed the senior, I suppose in your case we'll have to amend the saying. Try this then. Do good and run. Self-examination Two friends, who belonged to a group practicing interior training, were given the practice of self-examination. At the end of the day, sit down for a few minutes and try to see where you have gone wrong. Make attempts to correct the faults. One of them, a desperately conscientious man, raised the point when they next had a meeting with the teacher. I find myself overwhelmed when I do self-examination, he said. I feel absolutely crushed. It seems to have been all blunders and meanness and weakness. I can't get rid of the thought of them afterwards either. Sometimes... I can't sleep. The teacher said, There is another way for people like you. You need not do formal self-examination. Whenever you think of your mistakes, 
Turn your mind on to the Lord. Create vividly in your mind the scenes from the life of His incarnations. This will free you. Make friends with the lion, and you will not be bothered by jackals. Then he turned to the other and asked him how he found the practice. Oh, I don't have trouble at all, he replied. I've come to realize that humility is the secret of self-examination. If the thought comes up that I have failed in virtue, I just think the Lord did not give me the strength. If the idea comes that I have not prayed, I think he did not give me a devotional nature. If it occurs to me that I have not studied the Holy Scriptures to find out how to approach him, then I say, after all, he did not give me the head for that. When I realize that I have not been very helpful to my fellow men, I think he did not bless me with loving kindness. All I am and all I do and all I think, it is all from him. What have I to repent of? What have I to correct? It is all his, nothing of mine at all. There might be just one thing of your own in all this, said the teacher. And what is that? Perhaps a tiny bit of pride in your own cleverness? Last words. A teacher of the Gita Yoga had as a disciple an Englishman brought up to restrain expression of feeling. The teacher approved of this as a basis but got him to take part in amateur theatricals and public speaking, so that there should be some creative expression. The Englishman's mother was sceptical, though she had been baptised, and often sarcastic about religion. They lived far apart, and when they did meet, he never talked about his beliefs and practice. She had a vague idea that he was inclined to some strange oriental cult, but she would dismiss the subject of religion in a few sharp words if it ever appeared on the conversational horizon. She recognised that he was a good son to her. When finally she fell very ill, he took her into his home to look after in the final stages. Now, the teacher had told this disciple, as he told all of them, not to feel he was giving up the religion into which he had been born. He recommended him to read from the New Testament every day, which he did, with slowly increasing interest. Later, he took to having a crucifix by his bed during the night. One day, the teacher asked about the mother, and hearing that she was very weak, said, the Gita declares that the last thought of the dying person may be very important. If, when you are there, 
you become aware that your mother is about to die. Say into her ear, Jesus loves you. The disciple gulped. Suppose, he thought to himself, mother didn't die, but recovered for a bit. He could imagine her reaction. Only the week before, a well-meaning friend had sent her a postcard with angels pictured on it and the inscription below. When we pass over, they are waiting to greet us on the other side. His mother had snorted contemptuously and remarking, How do they know, I wonder, told him to throw it in the waste paper basket. Then he pondered that after all he had only been told to do it if he knew definitely that she was dying, and he could never be completely certain of that. On the other hand, this had been an instruction from the teacher, so there must be circumstances in which it would apply. His mind wavered to and fro for a long while, but in the end he made up his mind to do it. When the time came, however, and his mother lay dying before him, he found himself so embarrassed that he could not bring the words out. He stood silently and prayed. Afterwards, telling the whole story to another pupil, a close friend, he ended, I just couldn't do it. I often worry about it now. I feel it was a big failure, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't let Mother go over with her last thought, not Jesus loves you, but Jimmy's gone balmy, because that's what she would have thought. Some years later... The Englishman himself died, alone and in the night. He was lying peacefully, and there had been no struggle. But it seemed that he had woken before it happened, as he was found holding the crucifix. His friend one day discussed with the senior the story as he knew it, and remarked, I think our teacher must have made a little miscalculation there, when he told him to say those words, Jesus loves you, to his mother. After all, he must have known Jimmy wouldn't be able to say them. It was absolutely impossible for someone brought up like him. And it worried him a lot. He often thought how he had failed. The senior, a woman, laughed at the story, but added, Not absolutely impossible, you know. If it had been absolutely impossible, he wouldn't have worried about it. The Gita says that the Lord is in the heart of every being, so nothing's absolutely impossible, is it? I agree that our teacher knew it was highly unlikely that he would get over the obstacles and say these words. But the point is, he thought about it often. 
no doubt. There was a feeling of worry, of having failed, but still he was thinking about it. And when he himself woke up in the night and realised that he was dying and just had the strength to reach for that crucifix, what do you suppose came to his mind? It was those words. He'd failed to say them before, but they didn't fail him then. Anger. In the sermon, it was remarked in passing that in the Eastern traditions, it was generally held that the worst sin was anger, leading to injury to others, whereas in Christianity, it seemed that sexual license was worse. In English, for instance, the very word immorality had overtones of sexual transgressions. This part of the sermon was reported to a Christian who lived in the neighbourhood, and he later tackled the preacher on the point, adding, I get angry myself, but only with good reason, so I don't regard it as particularly sinful. After all, when Christ drove the money changers from the temple, he showed anger, and he was unquestionably right. When I get angry, it's the same thing. The preacher took him outside, onto the grass, and gave him a big stone. He told him, Throw this stone on the ground with all your force. The Christian flung it down, and it made a great dent in the ground. The priest removed the stone and said, Come back when that mark has gone. It took some weeks before the mark was gradually obliterated by the rains and by people walking over it. Then the priest said, This is like your anger. Now take up the stone again. They went to a still lake, and the Christian was asked to throw the stone as hard as he could into the water. It made a tremendous splash, and the ripples went to the edge of the lake. But in five minutes all was completely calm again. The preacher continued, and that is the anger of a Christ. It is a passing thing, just for this event, and it does not do any damage. When you struck the ground with your stone, some little insects were killed, but all you have just done here was to disturb the water momentarily, and it was even good for the plants at the edge of the water. The Christian was impressed, but did not want to give in so easily, and argued, You've told me that my anger remains and has lasting effects, whereas his anger is momentary and bears no malice. But still, at the moment of anger, mine is the same as the anger of Christ, isn't it? The priest said, It may seem so, but it is not really so. Take the example of water again. Suppose a smoothly flowing stream, and suddenly, it is dammed by a landslide or something like that. 
It piles up before the obstacle. It froths and swirls, as if in frustration. It looks angry, so to say. But then it goes round and soon creates a new channel round the obstacle and is flowing smoothly as before. There is no permanent mark and there is no fixed attitude, no posture. Habits I don't see why we are asked to come to meditation and devotion practice classes. Surely the whole point of yoga is to develop the consciousness in the ordinary affairs of life. So we ought to practice them in that field. If we don't do that, they are basically useless for life. This sort of objection is very common especially among ambitious or property-loving disciples. A teacher once answered in this way, If you practice only in the ordinary life, your practice will be affected by the associations of that life. You may be unconscious of the distortion, but it will still be there. It used to be said among forgers of signatures that it is relatively easy to make a near imitation of someone else's signature. The really difficult thing is to prevent some of one's own characteristic letter formations from subtly influencing the movement of the pen. To rule this out, skillful forgers used to practice a signature upside down, purely as a pattern. That ruled out any traces of the forger's own handwriting. There were no familiar associations to activate them. In the same way, in ordinary life, you may try to imitate the conduct of a yogin, but the associations will subtly affect your behavior. You will find that very often your good intentions lead to poor results, Without some inner inspiration, you will find yourself backing wrong horses, so to say. By practicing regularly in circumstances free from familiar associations, you can build up clear inner awareness. Then your actions will be in accordance with the inner current of things. Of course, before this happens, we have to do our best on the basis of traditional right and wrong, but we must not expect too much from what we do. The most important thing is to practice to attain some inner calm. It is in calm that we can act well. At the beginning, that practice has to be done in special circumstances, Later, it can be maintained in rough waters as well as smooth. Honor 
A great scholar, a devout man, was suddenly offered a very high position in the political field. It would be largely prestige, but he thought that he would be able to do a good deal to encourage and support scholarship and religion from that eminence. He would, however, have to spend a good bit of his time in official ceremonial, and to that extent, his own work would suffer. After some hesitation, he accepted the honour, and duly received many telegrams of congratulation, and also a large number of small presents, in accordance with the custom of the country. A friend of his, a spiritual teacher, sent him a little packet. When he opened it, he found that it contained chocolates wrapped up in gold paper. To look like coins. Prayers answered. Before one enters a yogic path. It is natural to pray to the Lord for legitimate accessories to a natural life, with a view to share them also with others. The prayers are answered, unless they would be fatal to that person's spiritual growth. When he has entered on a path, however, the yogin is expected to rely on his own great self, and not to pray for anything at all, either for himself or others. An idealistic schoolmaster in a small village complained to his teacher that if only he had a larger place, he could do much more for the children of the neighbourhood. Surely I may pray for that, he said. I do not understand our rule which forbids praying for things. Surely it cannot be wrong to pray for that. Devote yourself to realization of yourself in God, said the teacher. And you will do much more good to the children as well than any actions in a new school place. But in the meantime, persisted the schoolmaster, surely, surely. Well, said the teacher finally, there is one kind of prayer which is allowed. It is nearly always answered rather quickly, but it is rather difficult to do. And tell me, tell me, broke in the other. Here it is then. The prayer must be uttered, but you must not be conscious that it is uttered, and it must be uttered with a mouth by which you have never sinned. The schoolmaster listened to this and took his leave in some bewilderment. Some time later, he told the teacher that he found the prayer quite impossible. How can I utter it and be unconscious of it? And anyway, I am ruled out because I have sometimes misused my tongue shamefully, as I now realize. I thought at first it was a bit cruel to tell me such impossible things, but of course I did persist in asking. Well, I have put the idea aside and gone back to my yoga practices. As a matter of fact, it has been a sort of stimulus to them. I don't know why.
Some months later, the local mayor told the schoolmaster that the inspectors had reported very favourably on his work, and that he himself had organised a petition to the education ministry. There was a new minister who seized the chance to show a human face and get publicity by agreeing to build a larger school in the remote village. The schoolmaster took the wonderful news to his teacher, who said, "Let us bow together to thank God for answering your prayer." But I didn't make the prayer. You said it had to be uttered without my being conscious of it, and by a mouth with which I had never sinned. That wasn't possible, and it wasn't done. It was possible, and it was done. The teacher told him, "The prayer was uttered by others, by the parents of the children you have helped. You weren't conscious of it. Then it was uttered by their mouths, and you have never sinned with their mouths. Worship of God through the bodies and minds of others." Influenced unknown to you by your yogic life and meditation, is worship of the purest kind. It cannot be polluted, even by a temporary association with things. Proclaimed wisdom. A king heard about a special thirty days discipline, by which he could be blessed with the gift of proclaimed wisdom, namely, wisdom and the ability to declare it. The discipline was harsh. But the king was delighted to discover that it contained no requirement as to mental control, which would have ruled him out. The only necessity was endurance. He managed to follow the drastic reduction in his diet, the total abstinence from alcohol and opium, the limitation of sleep to three hours. But he found it increasingly difficult. To keep himself away from his queen and concubines. On the twenty-seventh day, he realized that he was not going to be able to do so by his will alone. He had himself dressed in poor clothes, and then the chief minister locked him in a deep dungeon underneath the palace. A stupid and fanatical pair of guards were borrowed from the train of a visiting ambassador, who told them, as he had been told, that a dangerous conspirator was to be kept in that dungeon, and that they were being given the privilege of guarding him for three days. They were only to pass him in some poor food and water. They could not speak the language, of course. But they were also to pay no attention to signs. For three days and nights, the king shouted and raved and pleaded and wept, and fell ill and nearly died, and cursed the guards for their stupidity. 
they followed their instructions. On the completion of the last three days, the guards were returned with a reward, and the king, an exhausted shadow of himself, but in the royal robes, waited in the courtyard. Soon after dawn, a heavenly messenger came flying toward the kingdom, bearing a little pot which contained dew that had fallen on a certain altar on a certain sacred mountain, collected every morning. When drunk, it would give the blessing of proclaimed wisdom. As he neared the capital, the messenger saw some girls bathing in a stream, and found himself suddenly submerged by a tidal wave of desire. He put the pot on a rock at the top of a high cliff and went down to them. When he came back, he found the pot upset and the nectar all spilt. A squirrel had investigated it, knocked it over, and fled. The messenger, aghast, refilled the pot with water from the stream and went on. He alighted in the courtyard and presented the pot to the king, who, in the presence of all the people, slowly drank it. The audience prostrated themselves. Under the pretense of giving an initiation, the messenger drew near the king and whispered what had happened, continuing, It will take a month till the pot can be filled again. When it is, I shall bring it to you secretly. It will be my last commission, as I shall have to pass three lives as a quadruped, having become a quadruped on my way here. You will be expected to proclaim wisdom. My own wisdom is limited, but I can tell you some things which you can say to gain time, till you actually drink the water and can speak wisdom from yourself. For instance, I can tell you the method of controlling passion. You are hardly the one to do that, retorted the king. But in any case, that's not the sort of thing I want. Tell me some things that are going to happen, so that I can prophesy to my people. Oh, king, said the heavenly messenger, it was the great wave of your frustrated desire which overwhelmed me on the way to your palace. I had never expected to meet anything like that outside hell. It took me by surprise. I do know the method of controlling passion, but I did not apply it, and I shall suffer for that failure. As to prophecies, I can tell you only one thing. There is bound to be an earthquake tonight, as a result of the thwarting of the proper course of things. After that, you must bluff your way with ambiguous announcements, as most oracles do. Don't answer more than one question a day. He took his leave and rose into the air. The people raised their heads, and the king motioned them to get up. Oh, my people, he shouted, do not remain in your houses tonight. Sleep in the streets or in the fields. There is going to be 
an earthquake. The people hurried home and brought out their furniture and beds into the streets, while the king had everything and everyone taken from the palace. Sure enough, there was something of an earthquake which brought some houses down, but thanks to the king's warning, no one was injured except a few who had refused to believe. Next day, in the court, the king announced that for the next month he would answer just one question each morning. A minister asked, In the neighbouring state a general is rebelling against the king. Will he be successful or not? The king did not like the neighbouring monarch, and on an impulse said, The general will be successful. That other king, who had heard about the earthquake prediction and the events that led up to it, at once made his submission to the general in order to save needless bloodshed in a lost cause. Next day, the king was asked about a famous poet and writer who had become ill. The king did not like this man either, and said, The illness will be fatal. When this was reported to the writer, he turned pale, lost all desire to eat, and died. In this way, the king created the future by his predictions, which became more and more potent as each one was confirmed. After a month, the heavenly messenger appeared secretly in the king's bedroom with a pot full of the nectar. This, he said, will give you true wisdom, not these prophecies you have been making, which have nothing to do with wisdom. When you are wise, you will not make them. Then you can keep your nectar, snapped back the king. I am satisfied that what I am doing is far better than preaching to people about controlling passions and that sort of thing. What I do has real results. Soon afterwards, he had his first and only failure, having predicted that he himself would live forever. The messenger took the pot and rose into the air, not knowing what to do. With his divine sight, he saw another messenger on his way to give spiritual illumination to a saintly man. He said, I will come along with you and give him what I have as well. But he does not speak at all, said the other. He has taken a vow of silence because the people round here are such terrible gossips. He may have the wisdom, but I do not see how he will be able to proclaim it. Nevertheless, the blessing of proclaimed wisdom was given along with the blessing of illumination. They slipped the two potions into the drink of herbs, which one of the saint's disciples prepared for him each evening. When the saint tasted the sweetness of it, he looked inquiringly at the disciple, who stared back blankly. The master drank it up without pursuing the point. He supposed that the disciple had put in something sugary, without realizing how sweet it was. Thereafter, 
when the people of the town saw the saint, they often found a sort of peace coming into them. Their passions were quieted, and they had courage and inspiration to face the battles of life. One man, who was shouldering heavy responsibilities, had always been a target for jealous gossip and envious slanders, along with the host of anxieties and worries connected with his position. He saw the saint on his way to visit a dying woman passing through the monsoon rain. He was not huddling under the eaves like others on the street, but walking calmly through the wall of water, head thrown back and obviously enjoying the feel of the warm rain, not at all put out by the soaking of his simple dress. It made a vivid picture, which remained in the mind of the onlooker. Later on, when that worried man was confronted with the usual mosquito swarm of his anxieties, the image of the holy figure in the rain came to him, rising before his inner eye again and again. At first, obscurely, and later more clearly, he found that in himself there was something which could walk serenely through the downpour of inner apprehensions and outer disparagement. He felt that it was all nothing more than a monsoon rain, which would pass away of itself. Another man of the town had undertaken, or rather been burdened with, a long task which seemed never-ending. He felt he would never be free from it. Sometimes he would work energetically for a week or so, but it seemed to make no impression on the magnitude of what remained, and then he would sink into apathy. Whether he tried hard or did nothing, it made no appreciable difference. The town was not far from a desert, and if a strong wind blew up from a certain direction, the houses on that side would have their little gardens covered with sand drifts. One of these was the saint's small place. The townsman happened to pass that way after a sandstorm, and he saw that the garden was piled with sand, round the flowers and bushes, on their leaves, everywhere. He saw the holy man with a tiny brush, slowly and rhythmically sweeping sand off the leaves into a little pan, and thought to himself, at that rate, it will take him weeks to get it clear. He noticed in the neighbouring garden a little boy of about three, who was piling up the sand with his hands into little hills, and then laughing as they collapsed. Looking at the two, he realised that the saint too was enjoying the shifting patterns made by the sand as he brushed it. He felt a sort of cool breeze in his heart. When he got home, the endlessness of his own task took on a new dimension. He found he could now enjoy each little bit of it as he did it, without thinking further, and felt himself freed 
from a crushing burden. In the last years of the saint's life, a stray dog turned up. It looked as if it had travelled a long way and gone through terrible experiences. It attached itself to him, following him around with great devotion, but never getting in the way. It seemed to understand many things about his life. One day, when the dog was sitting on the little veranda beside the teacher, two disciples in the garden below were discussing traditional stories about aspirants who, for some fault, had to undergo animal existence, but nevertheless retain their memory and higher awareness through the time of imprisonment in a lower body. One of them was saying confidently, Oh, rather impossible, I'd have thought. He recalled one of the stories about a camel, and said rhetorically, How could he retain spiritual consciousness during a camel incarnation? The brain of a camel simply couldn't entertain the thoughts. He suddenly felt the dog's intelligent eyes on him, and stopped with an inexplicable sense of embarrassment. Above, the saint nodded and patted the dog affectionately. The Judge There is a hint of this story, though not the main point, in Kipling's short, On the Gate. He calls his main human character St. Peter, as this has the necessary associations for most Western readers, it is followed here to save explanations. An angel was appointed to judge one whole generation of humans. He had been given a limited omniscience and omnipresence so that he could live through their lives with those whom he would afterwards judge. When the last member of the generation had died, he was told to get ready for his task. But he was instructed to pay his respects to St. Peter first. In a clear voice, the angel explained to St. Peter, I shall not judge these humans from the outside. I was given the grace to be with them, in fact in them, every moment of their lives. I have known all the difficulties and temptations they were subject to. I have lived through their agonies of indecision. I have succeeded with them and failed with them. I have given my life to save my friends, and I have betrayed my friends to save my own skin. I have been a compassionate helper, and I have been a murderer. How do you propose to judge them? asked St. Peter. I have the record of all that happened, and another of all that ought to have happened. 
I shall compare the lists and judge on that basis. As I said, I know their free will is limited. Though I am an angel and absolutely pure, I have been through it all with them. I shall take everything into consideration, of course. I am fully qualified to be a judge. St. Peter said, For that, you still lack one thing. And what is that? asked the angel. You are an angel and absolutely pure. You don't know what it is to need forgiveness yourself. The angel looked at St. Peter, and St. Peter looked at the angel. Then the angel whispered, Yes, I've been self-righteous and arrogant. Forgive me. And he knelt. St. Peter blessed him and said, Now go and judge. Tale, no tale. A foreigner visiting a Himalayan region for the first time was impressed by the sight of troops of langur monkeys dropping fearlessly down almost vertical cliff faces by catching on projecting branches of trees. He noticed the use they could make of their prehensile tails, often much longer than their bodies. Some of them would hang by their tails. He happened to meet an English-speaking yogin and mentioned it to him. The yogin said, These monkeys are sacred because of the association with Hanuman, but their physical form itself teaches a lesson. Their name comes from a Sanskrit word meaning tailed one, and it is one of their central attributes. If that tail was strapped to the body so that the monkey could not free it, it would become atrophied. Its owner would feel pain and probably soon die. If the monkey does not use the tail, it will sicken and finally kill him. Man, on the other hand, has no external tail, so not using a tail does him no harm at all. He has not got one. But he has got a higher mind, a buddhi, which is one of his central attributes. If he does not use that, he will suffer. It will spiritually atrophy, sicken, and finally kill his awareness. The monkey, in whom the buddhi is as yet asleep and not functioning, does not suffer from not using it. For practical purposes, he has not got one. But when, in the course of time, the monkey has become a man, if he neglects to use the buddhi, he is going against something in himself. The result will be intense suffering and a temporary check to his further progress. There is an ancient epic called Ramayana, which depicts an earlier age when the display of Maya was not the same as the present one. The monkey Hanuman is shown at the beginning with his higher intelligence clouded. But after meeting the divine incarnation Rama, he becomes not only wise, but a prince of devotees. In the story, however, which has a symbolic meaning for the present day, some of his external behavior remains primitive. 
though he is superior in character to any of the humans, he still can use his tail to great effect in the war against the demon Raven. Powers In a remote area of an undeveloped country, a river came rushing out of the mountains, dividing just afterwards. Still further on, the two streams joined up again. So there were two huge arcs of flowing water enclosing a long, wide island. The surrounding terrain was mostly desert, but the villages beside the river could live reasonably well. No general irrigation schemes had ever been developed. Once a small landslide blocked one of the branches of the river just below the division. All the villagers living on that arc of the river cooperated to clear it, thus rescuing their water supply. The village situated at the spot where the river divided realized that they could dam up one branch of the river by felling trees into it, thus starving the villages on that arc of water. They trained themselves in the use of weapons. When they were an efficient fighting force, they began to blackmail all the villages, threatening to cut off their water supplies, either by blocking one arc alone, or even diverting the whole river into a deep cavern reputed to be bottomless. A few of the villages refused to pay the tribute, and attempted to conquer the village that was demanding it. But they were defeated in battle by the trained armed men, and had to capitulate. The armed village now became aristocrats, living on tribute enforced by their arms. A new enlightened government came into power, and the head village realized that at some time in the future their monopoly and aristocratic life would be threatened. Looking far ahead, they selected a very bright boy who had a strong sense of village patriotism. They changed his name, and falsified the records to make it appear that he had been born in another village. Then they arranged for his higher education at the capital, with special attention to agriculture and planning. They directed him to work his way up in the ministry, which would ultimately control the affairs of this area. He was successful, and became one of the young assistants to the minister. As they had hoped, he was asked to prepare a plan for this area. It was thought that his local knowledge would be useful. When he presented the plan to the minister, one of the proposals was to end the monopoly and tribute, and build a dam and reservoir to bring a whole wide area under cultivation. 
The minister scanned the papers and remarked, You yourself come from that village, do you not? It has been kept secret, of course, but we have some good intelligence agents. His assistant looked surprised, but admitted, Yes, it is true, but all that has to go. It is holding up progress. The minister nodded, and the plan was published. When the news reached the village, the father and uncles were horrified, and came in a group to see their protégé. His father burst out, "'What are you doing? We arranged for your education, everything, so that you could keep our traditional position safe. And now you are using your power against us? Have you no loyalty, no gratitude?' "'Father,' said the young official, why do you suppose that I am entrusted with this power? It is because I can see the interests of the whole country, and not just the interests of our little village. If I were still thinking in terms of the advantage of one village, I should never have this official position. Our people will be given a good pension, but the blackmailing profits will cease. This power has come to me because I have studied and can see clearly the whole area. I cannot now shut my eyes and be aware of only the tiny area of personal interest. Obedience. Your disciples treat you with great reverence, remarked a visitor to a teacher. I suppose they follow literally what you tell them, and you have to be careful. They are always saying, the teacher wants this, or the teacher doesn't like that. They do follow literally what I tell them, replied the teacher so long as they agree with it. If they don't agree with it, they interpret it as a joke or a sort of riddle which they have to interpret. Then they interpret it into what they want, which is sometimes the very reverse of what I have said. How could they do that? marvelled the visitor. Oh, quite easily, said the teacher. For instance... I tell them not to swallow the teachings I give without examining them. I ask them to think for themselves. If they have a sensible objection, I tell them to raise it. But some of them think that to do so would show a lack of faith in me. So their doubts never really get resolved. They only get buried. Some of them devote themselves to what they call service, but which is really self-display and domination. Good cooks take charge of the kitchen and make quite unnecessarily elaborate meals for us. They have no time to practice yoga. When I say that the cooking should be done by all in turn, they say, Oh, but we couldn't have badly cooked food served to the teacher. 
and one of the expert cooks goes into the kitchen just the same and bosses the beginner, who is cook that week. I tell them not to reverence me, but to practice for God-realization and self-realization. But they think that is all my holy humility. In fact, they do everything I say, if it agrees with their own preconceived ideas. And as the yogic training is based on giving up preconceived ideas, what I say does not agree with their preconceived ideas. So they do everything I say, except what I actually do say. Holy Ceremony A student who came to the lectures of a teacher but had not become a disciple was sometimes invited to stay on a little. On one occasion he asked about a tantric ceremony he had heard about. A pair, male and female, perform a rite on the night of the full moon by which their sexual conjugation is sanctified and made uplifting. I and my girlfriend have heard about this, and we should like to try it. It seems a beautiful idea. The teacher replied, These things are not recognized in the classical tradition. They very rarely lead to any lessening of bondage to the world, with its consequent suffering. But the student persisted that it was surely wrong to rule out any aspect of the divine current. He had been impressed with the phrase that, in the ceremony, heaven and earth were made one. Finally, the teacher told him, I have not practiced these things, but I have read one of the principal texts. It is true that there are code words in the texts. For instance, wine may be referred to by the word tirtha, literally meaning a holy place but some participants have described them to me. In these rites, a principle of nature is solemnly worshipped with flowers and incense. A few sips of wine are permitted, but there must be no trace of vulgarity. The pair worship the divine principle in each other and in the universe. They must fast the day before the ceremony and must not touch each other during the twenty-eight days leading up to it. The student was taken aback. What? Oh, we couldn't do that. We thought this was just a special event once a month, a sort of extra. We can't let it interfere with our ordinary life. The teacher gave a little smile. Yes, some of the enthusiasts for these things somehow overlook plain statements of the text. They just pick out the things they think they will like. This... Tantric ceremony represents a restriction, not a license. Perhaps it was devised for people normally tending to be promiscuous. It requires tremendous strength of will. Some of them call themselves heroes. They have to worship the divine principle with the same joy, not only in some particular expression, but when it strikes their body with accident or disease. These are no... Fair-weather worshippers, my friend. It is not impossible that there should be a spiritual benefit from such teaching, 
but there is a great risk of misunderstanding and abuse. That is one reason why it is not part of the classical tradition of the Upanishads and Gita. And it is best avoided. Handshake. I think it's wrong to avoid situations of temptation, declared a pupil somewhat positively. If you do, it means you're afraid of them, and to fear them gives them power over you. It's neurotic. Of course, one shouldn't seek them out, but if they come, well, let them come. Others demurred. We are told not to go voluntarily into places where we shall be tempted. In the Lord's Prayer, too, we pray not to be brought into temptation. There was no agreement, and they decided to put the point to a senior of long experience. She said, When one is still weak after an illness, it's a mistake to go out into a gale. It's not a question of being afraid. It's recognizing that one may not be able to keep one's footing in a sudden blast. Now, we here are in the process of recovering from the illness of ignorance of the self. Most of us are convalescing. We are still weak. We recognize that we might not be able to keep our footing in a gale of old associations or new temptations. So... We don't go out in them unnecessarily until our legs are strong enough. Nothing wrong with that. But some of us are in circumstances where we can't avoid such things, however much we might like to, persisted the original objector, trying to save something of his point. For instance, I'm occasionally in a position to swindle the firm out of money, which they couldn't trace. Our teacher said that it is best to arrange that someone is with you on those occasions. Then there's no temptation. But that is not the final answer, it's true. What is the answer, then? The senior stood up and asked him to shake hands with her, and then hold on. They shook hands in the ordinary way. Then she said, Now try to pull me across to you, and I'll try to stop you. She braced her feet, but the pupil was much stronger, and he easily pulled her to him. Now try again, and she held out her hand. He took it, as before, and began to pull. But this time the hand was quite limp. It slipped from his grasp. He caught it again, and the same thing happened. You're not shaking hands properly, he said. No, she replied. And so you had nothing firm to pull at. You can't get much purchase on something quite limp. It's difficult to carry away an unconscious man. Experts say it's easier if he's resisting a bit, because then his limbs are stiff. You can use them to lift him off his feet, and then carry him. Well, 
when we meet temptations, we should try not to shake hands with them. To shake hands is to give them something firm to pull on. If we let ourselves get interested in them or form pictures of them, then we are spiritually shaking hands. If we are alert, we can just drop the interest. It's not a question of effort, but dropping effort. If we have practiced yoga, it's relatively easy to withdraw the vitality into the central line of the body. Then there's no clutching at the outer objects. They may momentarily take our hand, so to speak, but it will be quite slack, and they can't pull us to them. After a few experiences, we begin to feel the thrill of real independence. Prescriptions A tough, elderly pupil, once a well-known athlete in his youth, remarked on the calm rationality of the spiritual directions given by Vedanta as against the fanatical emotionalism of some devotional sects. The instructions given us are like a doctor's prescriptions. I think Shankara says that somewhere. The suffering is analysed, the cause is shown, and the patient is shown how to avoid it. Only if he fails to follow the preventive advice does treatment have to be applied. It's a very fine way to tackle spiritual illness, to treat it on the same lines as physical illness. My own doctor, as a matter of fact, sometimes comes out with things which just fit both cases. Only the other day he said to me, Look, do you want to get ill? No. Then take my advice now. Don't wait till you get ill and then come and ask me to cure you. And what was he telling you to do? asked his companion. Oh, that. Well, that was a bit ridiculous as a matter of fact. He wanted me to begin wearing long, thick underclothes. He said I mustn't get cold. But I told him straight out that I've never worn underclothes in my life and I'm not going to begin now. If it comes to that, I've never worn a top hat in my life either but I don't have to start going round in one now just because I'm a bit older. Why should I change my style of dress just because he says so? I don't criticise the way he dresses, though I could. I certainly could, but I don't. I leave his dressing style alone, and he can leave mine alone. That's all I ask. Still, he comes out with some good ones sometimes. He was saying that he's much worse off than a faith healer, because the faith healer's patients at least believe in him, whereas his own patients expect him to heal them, though they don't believe a word he says. I wrote that one down, so I wouldn't forget it.
Excuses. I can't be expected to practice yoga much, complained the pupil, because I am now so busy with the final structure of my business. If I don't do that, it might begin to decline, and if that set in, it might even collapse. This is an exceptional time for me. Once the business is completely, firmly established, I'll be able to concentrate on yoga. It will never be completely, firmly established, replied the teacher. Nothing in the world can be. Your present time of life is not exceptional, it's typical. After all, when one is a child, one can't practice yoga because one has never heard of it. Then at school, or as an apprentice, or learning from mother about running a home, those are full time, aren't they? Because one's learning new things all the time. Then, in the romantic tides of youth, there's hardly the inclination to practice yoga. Then one is building up a trade or bringing up the children. No time there. After retirement, and when the children have left, one's somehow a bit tired. One thinks, well, I couldn't succeed in yoga even in the full strength of youth and then maturity. What chance have I got now when my energies are waning? It's a train of excuses from beginning to end. It's based on the wrong idea that yoga is adding a few more obligations and concerns to the existing ones. It is not. It is learning to withdraw at fixed times, and later at will, from the whirl of compulsive reactions. It's learning to lay things down, not simply taking up more and more. Beginners at anything are usually tense all the time because they cannot yet understand which things are important and which are not. The expert knows how to relax and when he can relax. So even apart from technical skill, his actions are more efficient. All the stages of life have advantages and disadvantages. The small child asks the great questions which the parents cannot answer. He usually gets discouraged and gives them up. The energy of youth is an advantage, but may dissipate itself in what are later found to have been trivialities. Middle age often gives some stability, but also some little authority, and it can become possessiveness and petty domination. The fourth quarter of life is said by Manu to be specially favorable for the attempt to be spiritually free. The responsibilities have been discharged and apparently compelling ties have loosened. But all too often, older people have let themselves turn into mere bundles of habits. We should look at the advantages of the stage of life we are in, and avoid making excuses. However much we pile up excuses, we shall find ourselves at the end, without the great excuse. Why? What is that great excuse? asked the pupil. We shall find we have no excuse for having been born.
test not. In a country where several religions were practiced, including Christianity and Buddhism, a spiritual group existed which taught methods of mind control and meditation without restrictions of belief. Believers found their own faith intensified by the practices and were not asked to convert to a new faith. They began to prosper and undertook small charitable works where they saw a need, but these were to be occasions for practice of universality and serenity, not ends in themselves. They were near a small school. Some of the children came from a distance on bicycles, which they had nowhere to put against the rain. It was proposed that the group offer to provide a little shed for them. The school, short of funds, gladly accepted. Two of the Outer Activities Committee, one a Buddhist and one a Christian, were appointed to see it done. There was an elderly professional carpenter in the group, but he was not much liked by some because of his directness. Moreover, as he usually spoke only what he knew, he was often annoyingly right. So, the committee members asked two absolutely inexperienced members to do the job. This caused some surprise, and to justify their decision, they said to a senior, It is essential, don't you think, that younger members get experience in this sort of do-it-yourself job? Of course, we do have a carpenter, but that's no reason why he should automatically be called in. If he thought he was indispensable, it might lead to egoism. To have to stand down sometimes is a good test for him. This is going to affect others, replied the senior, namely the children of the school. Our young people can get experience on things that don't affect the world outside. Ah, but then they would not feel responsible. They'd know it didn't really matter, and might be tempted to do it carelessly. It wouldn't be real experience. We are supposed to be training here to do things properly once we have taken them on. Well, think it over. Because the same divine nature is in all of us, it doesn't follow that all of us express it equally well through shed-building. Still... You've been appointed, and you must make the decision. The committee members discussed it, but did not change their mind, and the two young ones began to build the shed. They had been told not to consult anyone, but simply to do their best. This they did, but soon the little shed began to leak, and then to tilt dangerously. The children stopped using it, the carpenter went to the school and offered to build a new one, free of charge. He made it firm and beautiful, which was criticised by some as egoistic self-display, though others thought it was just professional skill. 
The children used it from then on. Soon afterwards, the original shed collapsed. That day, there was a tacit agreement not to mention the embarrassing fact. Very early next morning, the two committee members got a cart and went quietly to take away the ruins, hoping to escape notice. On the way back, however, they encountered the senior sweeping the steps of their own centre. The Buddhist said with elaborate calm, Everything changes. The Buddha nature is change, and change should be welcome. The senior straightened up and looked across toward the new shed, bright in the early sun. Welcome indeed. The Buddhist reddened and looked away. All that happens is the will of God, added the Christian defiantly. It must be the will of God, or it couldn't happen. Let his will be done. It's all in the Bible. Yes, the Bible covers everything, doesn't it? Or nearly everything. They could not be sure, but as they moved off, they thought they heard a muttered, Test not, lest ye be tested. Giving up illusion. A young student was considering becoming a Brahmacharin celibate for three years. The teacher told him that when combined with the yoga practices, it would give increased intelligence, energy, happiness, and inner serenity. You cannot just say no, it must be part of the system of disciplined practice. It happened that the class was reading the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and they came to a passage picturing temptations that the Brahmacharin has to be able to face. Here is a girl, so beautiful that she seems to have been carved out of the moon, whose glances light up the world wherever she looks, whose lips are honey, and so on. Afterwards, he sought the teacher. I doubt if I could give up a girl like that, he confessed. You are not asked to, replied the teacher. This is a fantasy. Girls do not seem carved out of the moon. Their lips are not honey. You are asked only to give up the fantasy. But there are girls, well, not perhaps exactly like that, but just as attractive, and I am being asked to give them up. 
You are not giving them up at all, rejoined the teacher, assuming what you say, and that you might meet such a girl. You are asked to give up not her, but the illusion that someone like you or I could hold the attention of a beauty like that even for a minute. Fire stages. An Indian tradition says that training is usually like setting fire to wood that is a bit damp in places. It is difficult to get a flame at all, and it keeps going out. When it does catch hold a bit, great clouds of dense smoke arise, nearly choking the fire raisers. Then it begins to burn briskly, and people can benefit from the light and heat. Then it roars in triumph as the whole pile blazes. Finally, it dies down into the peace of the ashes. In the courtyard. The carpenter was poor, and one day asked his spiritual teacher whether it was right to pray for a better living. I too am poor, said the teacher, but after all, I have a place to sleep and some food to eat, which some people have not. I am ashamed to ask the Lord for more when there are so many worse off than I am. The carpenter thought resentfully, But you have some rich disciples. Why shouldn't they be asked to do something for me? But he managed to remain silent. As the years went by, his reputation as a conscientious workman grew, and things improved, though only a little. He began to feel, however, a sort of peace in his heart, and no longer resented the better circumstances of others. A new king came to the throne, energetic and efficient and interested in spiritual things. Conditions generally improved. It was announced that the king was inaugurating a new scheme. One person out of each street would be chosen by lot and invited to attend the palace to come before the king. Soon afterwards, a royal messenger told the carpenter that he was one of the lucky ones. The date and time were given to him. He was passed through the great outer gate of the palace into a wide courtyard. On the other side was the inner door, guarded by a huge, magnificently attired guard with an impressive moustache. His right hand, at the waist, held upright a bare sword. Timidly, 
the carpenter approached him and gave his name. The guard gestured toward a large tray on a stand. Put your presence there. Presence? I wasn't told about presence. How would someone like me have anything? The guard frowned. No one goes in without making presents. Ministers, ambassadors, whoever they are, they all make presents. Put yours there. Put whatever you've got. He looked away. The carpenter felt in his pocket and found only three copper coins. They were hardly visible on the expanse of the tray. As he stood bewildered, his teacher came out of the door. Over his plain coat, someone had hung strings of pearls. On his fingers were jeweled rings. He walked across and said, I will arrange them for you. As he bent to move the little coins about, the rings slipped off his fingers. The strings of the pearls broke, and they rained onto the tray in a cascade of light. The guard's eyes opened wide as the teacher carried the heaped-up tray past him into the palace. Now the carpenter's name was called from within, but he was too confused and ashamed to move. He stood looking down, twisting his toes in the dust. The guard crashed the sword into its scabbard and strode across. Gently, he slid his great hands under the little carpenter's armpits and carried him bodily through the door. This is the last present, he said and the best. In the dream, I was in an old-style fair, like the fairs of my childhood. Dazzling lights, blaring music, obscure comings and goings in the dark alleys between the stalls. The booths were selling unhappiness, failure, disease, disaster, despair, all at high prices. I wandered around and noticed a stall a little apart, with its shutters up. An inconspicuous notice read, The Kingdom of the Universe, First Customer Only. I smiled and went on. I lost my way, and later found myself before the little stall again. 
the front shutter was being taken down from inside, revealing a counter, and dimly behind it, a stalwart, fierce-looking old man in a patched cloak. He looked at me, and on impulse, I put my little handful of money on the counter, but keeping back three coins which I knew I would need to get back home. You are the first customer, cried the old man in an arresting voice, which made some of the passing crowd stop and look. But the bid is not enough. Are there any supporters? As if pulled by strings, some of the crowd came forward. A soldier put his bedizened sword on the counter beside my coins. Remember me when you come to your greatness, he muttered. An old lady laid down a few trinkets. These are my treasures, mementos of my dear husband. Remember me. A merchant put a bar of gold and others brought jewels. Still not enough, not quite enough, shouted the stallholder. It wants three copper coins more to make up the price. The others looked helplessly at each other. We have given everything, we have no more, they whispered. My hand felt the three little coins in my pocket, but I knew I needed them. I could not give these two. The price has not been met. I am going to close the shop. The voice was like thunder. My hand still closed on the three coins. Patched Cloak raised his hand. There was dead silence. Time stopped. Nothing moved. Was it only this once? Or has it been many times, dream after dream, incarnation after incarnation, that I have stood there, clutching the last coins that I will not give up? Fireworks A yoga pupil in Calcutta knew the manager of a theatre and was sometimes presented with a free seat. On one such occasion, he saw a demonstration of thought reading. The manager said, as he handed over the ticket, This is in your line. The central part of the show was that the performer came to the front of the stage, opened his arms wide and asked the audience each to think some question strongly. After a short time, he announced, There is a lady in the fifth row worrying about her mother, who has had a road accident. Her leg is broken. If this is correct, will the lady please stand up and acknowledge it? I can tell her that her mother will recover well. A middle-aged woman stood up and said, That is right. Thank you. The pupil assumed that she was a confederate of the thought reader.
However, he decided on a little experiment of his own. His father was an import-export merchant dealing in commodities, so he concentrated on the jute market, in which he knew his father was interested. Will the price go up or down? To his surprise, the thought reader said a little later, There is a young man inquiring about a particular commodity market. I can tell him the price will go up. The pupil told his father. The next day, the jute market price did go up. The father insisted on going to the theatre the next evening and got the manager to take him to the performer's dressing room. He asked him how much he earned with his thought reading and offered him five times that fee to advise him on the markets. The man laughed. My dear sir, if I could tell the future, do you think I would be here on the stage for these little fees? When I open my arms and stand there, I do pick up some thoughts, usually an anxiety, but as to answers, I have to make that up. That is one reason why I have to keep moving round the country. Some of my guesses turn out rather badly. The pupil told this to his spiritual teacher, who remarked, Such things are like fireworks. They seem brilliant and impressive, but they are useless for life. You cannot read by the light of fireworks. You cannot cook or warm yourself by their fire, and they disappear almost at once. Those who try to develop them become inwardly restless, and very often take to alcohol to relieve the inner sense of strain. Sometimes a trace of such things comes unsought to a yogin, but to play with them means loss of independence and can set back spiritual progress for incarnations. You can't get anything out of them at all. Tell your friend the theatre manager that such performances have nothing to do with spiritual training. In fact, they impede it. The pupil told the story to a British friend, who later encountered another case. The parallels are striking. The head of a famous Japanese hospital was visiting Britain, as delegate to a medical congress. He had been an expert in judo, and found friends at the main London judo club. As a side interest, he had done some investigation of the so-called psychic phenomena among Japanese miko, a sort of priest, often a woman. He said that he had, on several occasions, seen something like a star travelling across the shrine. But, as he remarked, these are not controlled conditions, and it may be that controlled conditions upset the delicate balance of trance concentration in which case such phenomena might never be fully established. Among the club members was a prominent British spiritualist, and at the doctor's request he arranged a seance with a reputed medium. Afterwards, the doctor was rather thoughtful for a few days. Then he was his usual cheerful self, and he said to the British captain of the judo club, "'You're a high-grade judo man,' 
and I pass this on to you privately. That medium told me a few generalities, which might be true of many people. But she also told me correctly that I have four children, and she got their ages right. At the end of the sitting she added, Oh yes, and your wife has cancer of the throat. As a matter of fact, just when I was leaving, my wife did mention casually to me that she had a sore throat. I said I would look at it when I got back, but after hearing that medium, I sent a cable to my deputy to get my wife in immediately for an exploratory operation on the throat. I was uneasy for a couple of days, perhaps you noticed, and then I got the cable in reply. Your wife has a slight soreness of the throat. I realized that the medium must have picked up that slight worry from my mind. I am a doctor, and my wife's remark must have registered as a remote anxiety. She picked that up, and then something decided to have a bit of fun with me, it seems. After establishing her credit with the children and their ages, it certainly worked. The British captain thought, just like the witches in Macbeth, and he remembered what the Calcutta pupil had told him about the teacher's comment. You can't get anything out of them at all. The Swimmer An anxious man, always trying to foresee every possible eventuality so that he could prepare countermeasures, came to a yoga group. There he took to reading up historical and legendary incidents in the scriptures, so that he would get to know how spiritual people behave. You've no need to do that, an experienced disciple told him. Our teacher tells us to try to become enlightened ourselves, rather than just reading about the enlightenment and enlightened actions of others. But then how is one to know what to do? replied the new disciple, and he went on as before. He happened to be an expert swimmer, and the senior one day asked him whether he could demonstrate the racing dive he had heard about. The swimmer readily agreed, pleased to be able to show his skill, Then they went together to the swimming baths. The expert changed into swimming trunks, and they walked together along the side of the baths toward the diving boards. The swimmer was on the side next to the water. Suddenly, the other gave him a violent push, and he fell into the bath and went under. He came to the surface quickly, climbed out, and looked inquiringly at the senior, who said, You went into the water sideways, in quite a tangle, trying to recover your balance, didn't you? Have you ever gone into the water like that before? 
Why, no. Who would ever go in like that? Unless he was pushed, of course. Then how did you know what to do? You say you've never practised it. How is it that you could come up so quickly? I was ready to help in case you got into trouble, but you had no difficulty at all. What exactly did you do? The swimmer laughed. <laughs> I don't know exactly what I did. I, I just made the proper movements to come up. I don't know what they were, but of course I came up at once because I'm a swimmer. A swimmer would always come up quite easily. He doesn't have to practice that sort of thing. Because he's a swimmer, he's a swimmer. In the same way, you've no need to rehearse or practice for life's unexpected turns, if you're a yogi. You'll meet them in some proper way. Because you're a yogi, you're a yogi. Mistakes A pupil, who lived rather carelessly, remarked, Mistakes are a necessary part of the path of training. If you read the biographies of even the greatest they all say that they made many mistakes. Some of them say that mistakes are a necessary part of the training. One learns from them. So I don't worry about my own conduct. Let the mistakes come, I think. Let them all come. I'll go through them and come out the other side. It is all part of the path. This was put to a senior pupil, a businesswoman for her opinion. She remarked, You need not tell him I said this, but I don't think our teacher would rate the idea very high in terms of clear thinking. It's easy to get woolly about spiritual things. I remember when I learned to type. I was in a class. Of course we made mistakes, but the teacher always stressed the importance of getting the habit of absolutely accurate typing. He never said that as mistakes are inevitable in learning to type, let them all come. He told us we should type very slowly, if necessary, to reduce the mistakes to almost nil. Those of us who followed his advice finally learned to type with perfect accuracy without thinking about it. The others, though at first they typed a bit quicker, were always subject to occasional lapses and never became good typists. Mistakes are like the falls when one is taking up skating. Some are inevitable, but we should make them as few as possible. They are part of the path, it is true, but... They are stumbles, not forward steps. Mm -hmm.
too good. In a thick grove, some way outside the town, was a small temple, looked after by a widowed retired businessman, who was a devotee of the divinity of the shrine. It was traditionally said, and widely believed, that anyone who came on foot to worship there, with a pure heart, every day for forty days, would receive blessings. Few undertook the forty days, but many people made occasional visits, and some of them experienced great relief from anxieties after the visit. They used to make a small donation according to their means to the temple each time they visited. The temple keeper spent a good deal of his time washing it spotlessly clean and polishing the surfaces to get them to shine. This was no easy matter, owing to the nature of the stone. He felt that the work he did was not appreciated by the worshippers who came and went. They saw him working, of course, but none of them realised how much he did. He happened to notice that some birds had nested in a tree near the entrance to the path through the grove. When a visitor approached, these birds would call out to each other. One day, when the birds suddenly became particularly noisy, he guessed that a group was coming and immediately set to work energetically. As they came up, they saw him furiously scouring the stone at the side of the temple, not near the door, he thought that would be too obvious. The little group of six performed their worship and left. It was part of the ritual to keep silent till they had got out of the grove, but he knew that then they would probably burst out into conversation. He ran along a little side path and hid, so that he could overhear what was said. Sure enough, one remarked, Did you see that fellow working at the side wall? Terrific, wasn't it? He couldn't have known we were coming, either. He must have, retorted another contemptuously, and it was all an act. He must have known we were coming somehow. How could he possibly keep that pace up? He was doing it too hard to be genuine, I'm afraid. Ham acting, not working, that was. The devotee heard all his hopes punctured. He knew the story would go round. He felt a sense of futility and began to do less work on the temple. But the inner bitterness did not lessen. Ham acting, ham acting, ham acting. Lazy swine, he thought. What do any of them do? Sometimes he would see the pointlessness of his circling thoughts and almost overcome them. But then the suppressed fury would blaze up again. In desperation, he spent a whole night in self-examination, praying for light. Enlightenment comes with the dawn, he had heard somewhere. As dawn came, he realized, not merely intellectually, but in his heart, that he had been cleaning the temple not as a service for the god, but for the good opinion of worshippers. He was able to work again, but quietly now, with his mind centred on service to heaven without thought of men. 
After forty days, he noticed a calm spreading outward from his heart throughout his body and movements. As he grew older, his body worked more slowly, but the peace grew deeper and deeper. One day, as he was polishing in the sunlight, a voice behind him said, Sir? He turned and saw a group of young people looking at him with interest and respect. The man who had spoken, whom he had seen a few times at the temple, continued, My cousin, from a long way off, came on a visit, and I brought him here. He is master of a stonemason's business, and told me that this stone is very difficult to polish. When he heard that it is only a single man who looks after the whole temple, he told us that it is a great work of service that has been done here. We had not realized it. We thought the stone shone naturally. With your permission, I and my friends would like to help you under your direction. A couple of helpers dropped away in time, but the others remained and new ones joined. After a year, one of them said to the old man, Sir, I have noticed that your movements are smooth, and you do not seem to get tired. Would you tell me something about this? We get tired, though we are young. Why, he said, I have been doing this for a long time. No doubt I am used to it. Surely that is not all, is it, sir? The old man looked into the sincere face in front of him and said slowly, My work has changed. But first, I used to think of the Maurya stone, near where I once lived. It is beautifully polished, and has kept its sheen for over two thousand years. I thought I would polish the temple like that. It would be a wonderful achievement, and everyone would admire it. I was worshipping myself as I worked. Then I began to hanker after some appreciation, he told him the story of the visiting group and the sarcastic remarks about ham acting. I had been worshipping the opinions of others. But then I began to be able to work simply to serve the Lord who is enshrined here. How do you see our work, sir? What are you thinking of as you work? The man pondered. Well, when I am polishing one bit, I suppose I am thinking that I should get this really shining and then move on to the next bit, and I have a vague idea of how many days it will take to finish the whole wall, and that will be my offering to the Lord. While you think like that, you will get tired. I do not say it is bad, but you will get tired. Then how do you do it, sir? I polish the bit that is in front of me without thinking of anything else. As I polish it, I am polishing my heart. And then I realize that the Lord is polishing my heart. And then I realize that the Lord is polishing the wall. He stopped. There was a silence. And is there anything else, sir? In a very low voice, the old man whispered, 
Sometimes I think I see the Lord reflected dimly in the polished wall. Turtle Disciples nearly always pass through a phase when they feel that it is no use doing any service to the spiritual group or to fellow men. No use, in fact, doing anything with a purpose because all these things will reinforce egoity, the feeling, I am doing it. They may drop for quite a long time into a sort of inertia, thinking, well now, at any rate, I am not being egoistic. To a pupil in this state, a teacher told a parable. It is a tradition in ancient China that the turtle smooths out its footsteps in the mud by wiping them out with its tail as it goes along. It leaves no footmarks, and therefore its enemies cannot follow its footsteps. But the enemies follow the marks left by the tail. Then what is one to do? wondered the pupil. You cannot stamp out your egoity, but you can forget it. Forget yourself in the action. Perform your actions without hoping for a result or fearing the results of failure. Perform the actions for the joy of the movement itself. Feel the natural impulse to beauty and order flowing through your movements and actions. Do not think of what went before or what may come after, but lose yourself in this which has come before you. You will feel as if you had been relieved of an awkward and hampering burden, and your actions will become light. One step, twenty steps. When someone takes one step toward the Lord, the Lord takes twenty steps toward him. It is a striking phrase which has vivified and energized the devotion of many yogis. Nevertheless, it can be interpreted, disregarding the plain meaning of the words, into something quite different. In a lazy period, one who believes himself a devotee can reason something like this. What this says is that when I take a step toward him, the Lord takes twenty steps toward me. In fact, he is doing the same as I do namely taking one step, and then he adds nineteen more of his own. So, 
If I take no step at all, then admittedly the Lord will not take that step either. But then he will add nineteen steps of his own to it. Adding nineteen to nothing gives nineteen. So he will still move nineteen steps toward me. He won't arrive quite so quickly, perhaps, but the difference will soon be made up. Someone who heard of this remarked, That idea is based on addition, and it is against the clear meaning. What the text says is that when one step is taken toward the Lord, the Lord multiplies it by twenty. Even if it is only a single step, that step of the devotee becomes twenty steps by the Lord. But if the devotee cannot be bothered to take even one step, well, twenty times nothing is nothing. It is true that the Lord could appear immediately, but he leaves it to a devotee to have the joy of himself coming even a little toward the Lord. Warning. There was a discussion about whether it is necessary, or even right, to give a warning on a spiritual matter when it is clear that it will not be heeded at all. One view was that, in such cases, it is meaningless, and the instance was given of a saintly man who had given a warning about the sin of using violence to a crowd of self-styled patriots. Their response was to beat him, and then go on with their program, which in the event led to the calamities for others and themselves, which the saintly man had predicted. A member of the Sang asked for an explanation. Did that saintly man know they wouldn't listen, or did he simply miscalculate? Nothing is absolutely impossible, and he would have been following a spiritual impulse to speak out, said a senior. But yes, he would have known that, in the ordinary course, they would never listen to him. Then why do it? persisted the other. The Gita says yoga is skill in action. Surely it isn't skillful action to waste the breath like that and provoke them as well. I used to think so too, but then I had an experience of it from the other side, and that made me change my mind. I was very ambitious when I was young, and I suddenly got a good chance to make a jump in my career. I knew that one of the other Sang members had had something similar a little time before. To my amazement, however, an old and rather tottery Sang member approached me and timidly hinted that I should be careful about taking up anything that would excite ambition. I guessed that this came indirectly from the teacher, but I brushed it aside with one sharp comment about interference. I assumed this was some sort of routine warning given mechanically to pupils, but my opinion of the teacher's insight went down a bit. There was not the faintest possibility of my listening to that sort of thing, particularly through that sort of intermediary. At that time I couldn't distinguish between a letter and the postman. As things turned out, my project was successful, 
but it did cause me a good deal of anxiety. I found I couldn't stop thinking about it. It invaded my thoughts and hindered my yoga practice. It was a long time before I could get free. When I look back on the beginning and end of that time of self-created difficulty, one thing stood out clearly. I had been warned. There had been no possibility of my listening, but I had been warned. And that gave me confidence in the teacher. From then on, I paid great respect to what he said. If he had not given me that warning, futile though it seemed to be at the time, it might have taken much longer to get on a firm basis. It may well be that some of those terrorists, too, will look back and realize we were warned. Hypnosis Is there any benefit to be gained from using methods like self-hypnosis as an aid to meditation? None at all. In self-hypnosis, some elements of the personality are put to sleep, so to say, but they are not changed. Suppose there is a family whose house needs painting but we cannot agree on what colour it should be painted. We all feel strongly about it, so it does not get painted at all. Now, I think, I should like the house painted green, but they will not agree. I give my relatives a drug which sends them to sleep, and while they are snoring, I paint the house green. I have, in a sense, hypnotised them and got my idea through. But when they wake up... The Procession A great Mahatma, Ram Tirth, after his realization, found he could no longer continue a home life in society as professor of mathematics at Lahore University. He went to live at great heights in the Himalayas, occasionally coming down to give talks and publish articles. On one such occasion, his former teacher sent a young disciple to look after him. One day the Mahatma gave a four-hour-long discourse to an audience of thousands. He danced on the sands of the Ganges, and many of the audience saw a god there dancing. Afterwards, he went back with the young Brahmachari to the small room where he was staying. The Mahatma's lack of interest in food and his solitary life in the mountains had upset his digestive system, and he sometimes suffered from attacks of colic. When the spasms came on, his body twisted and turned. 
The disciple watched this with horror, and when he found there was nothing he could do to help, he burst into tears. The Mahatma patted him on the head and said to him, My son, Ram is above all this. But when you danced, we saw a god dancing there, sobbed the Brahmachari. And now this, how can this happen to you? The Mahatma replied, You know the procession of Ram when it goes through the village, don't you? What a joyous occasion it is. The image of the god passes, so majestic, so exulting. And then the band and its music, and some of the devotees singing the songs of divine love. Then there are the acrobats who follow the palanquin of the god, displaying their skill to take part in this great occasion. And finally, there are the clowns, aren't there? They turn somersaults to amuse the children and to add to the general happiness. You know all this, and you appreciate it all. The same thing is happening here. It is a divine procession through the body of Ram. The dance on the sands, that was the passing of the god before your eyes. And now, following the procession, here are the acrobats and the clowns, making their bodies twist and turn. It is all the divine procession, and Ram is an onlooker, appreciating it. The Well Some students discourage themselves by looking at themselves each day. After trying hard for a session, they feel that as there has been no result, they have failed. Next day, they try again, and again they fail. Gradually, this builds up into a conviction of continuous failure, and they begin to think, oh, what's the use of trying? For such occasions, there is an ancient Indian example, that of the well digger. The Indian tradition was that beneath the desert there is water, however deeply hidden. This has recently been confirmed in the case of the vast Rajasthan desert in northwest India, beneath which a legendary river was supposed to flow. It has been established that the river is actually there, though deep underground. The maxim of the well digger is this, each day, when he digs but finds no water, he does not think, I have failed. Next day, he digs again, deeper, and so on, day after day. Every evening, though he has found no water yet, he thinks not, I have failed, but nearer, nearer, 
nearer. The second part of this book is called Dragonpool. It begins with this story, Remembering. A woman disciple had been told, as all the disciples were told, to choose one verse from a holy text each week and learn it by heart. She protested to a senior for whom she had a great respect. That would be quite impossible for me. Even as a child, I have never been able to memorize things. How do you know? asked the senior. Why, at one of my first classes in infant school, we were set to learn a little list by heart. It was six dates, and the others learned them quite quickly. But I just couldn't, I couldn't. And at the end of the lesson, the schoolmistress... I can see her now in her black bombazine and jet bracelets, all sweetness on the surface but hard as nails underneath, said that the others could go home, but I was to sit there till I had learned it. Well, I couldn't learn it. We just sat there, me and her looking at me with her lips in a straight line. After an hour, my mother came to find where I was, and when she learned what had happened, she took me away. That's how I know I can't remember things. You seem to remember that pretty well, remarked the senior, and she suddenly blazed up with some wounding remarks about deliberate idiocy, angling for special treatment, not stopping at offensive personal remarks. The junior went out, almost in tears. She stayed away for several days, and then came back, obviously uncertain of her reception. The senior greeted her most kindly, and after a little conversation said, you seem a bit pensive. Is anything the matter? Oh, no, nothing, replied the disciple reproachfully. Only what you said to me the other day. Why, what did I say? You said that, and then you said that, and then... And the disciple recounted the cutting slights point by point. So you can remember then. How is it that you can remember all that, and yet you can't remember one little verse? from the holy texts. Because that applied to me. The texts don't apply to me personally. They're declarations of the holy truth, I suppose, but they don't apply to me personally. Ah, said the senior, that's where you might be wrong, you know. All that nonsense I was talking doesn't apply to you at all. It just applied maybe to some clown whom you let into your role for a moment. But the holy texts apply to you to the real you. Apply them to yourself, to yourself personally, as clearly and sharply as you applied those silly remarks of mine. Then you'll find you can remember the verses 
easily. Reverence A devout pupil attended a spiritual meeting in another part of the country, at which holy texts were intoned by individual men and women. On his return, he told his teacher that he had been shocked by the lack of reverence shown by those reciting the texts. I had heard that they were a very good group, but they did not seem to show respect for what they were reading. You have told us that we should always read holy texts with great reverence. The teacher, who was well known for deep insight, asked, And did you feel the truth of the texts when they were being recited, as you say? Why, yes, said the pupil. It was very clear and firm, but no reverence. That put me off. The teacher said, When we recite the holy texts, we must always do it with great reverence. But if it should come to pass that there is no more I or we, then there is no reverence either. The holy texts speak out the truth as it is. They have nothing to do with reverence or no reverence. That's for human beings who still feel themselves separate individuals. Encounters in Yoga and Zen, Meetings of Cloth and Stone, was written by Trevor Leggett. The readers were Gerard McDermott, Madeline Brolly, Judith Clark, and Jonathan Keeble. The music was composed and performed by Peter Anthony Monk. It was produced by Loftus Media for the Trevor Leggett Adhyatma Yoga Trust.